You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, M.D., Jacob, Griffin, Scuttlebutt, Matt, Roger the Jolly, Hartman, Gingrich, Lisa, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Willie P., Schmarls, Buggy the Clown, Leslie the Spice Chonger, The Admiral Benbow, Misfit, Chairboat, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Gunsway Sally, Pitluck, The Sextant, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Scarlet Dawn, Hayfay, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course our quartermasters, Hunter, Heather, Buddy, Roger the Cabin Boy, Howard, Crimson Davy Thunder, and Felony Melanie. And I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Adam, Christopher, Gabriel, Garcia, Jesse, Morgan, Raymond, Ross, and Sophie, as well as our new quartermaster, Christopher, and our newest Commodores, James and Justin. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Today we're going to be talking about the really real final end to the story of the Pirates of the Fancy. But before we begin, I want to say that I know, I acknowledge that I can be a bit sympathetic toward these figures. And I'm not alone in that. A lot of the writers who discuss pirates tend to fall in love with their subject a bit. I mean, you've got these downtrodden people, abused and poor, and they decide to stand up against the full might of imperial, aristocratic European society. There are reasons to like them, especially the occasionally decent Robin Hood parts of these stories that can be intoxicating. But I think it's important to remember that the pirates, really all the pirates, are the bad guys. There's this tendency that a lot of us seem to have to idolize bad people, especially in media. You know, there are those who would call someone like Walter White an anti-hero, but he's not. He's just a villain. He's a charismatic villain, sure, but he makes the lives of everyone around him worse in significant ways. He is the bad guy. And pirates were robbers and killers, I mean, put them in the modern world. Take away the veneer of romanticism, the centuries of storytelling done about the pirates, and imagine that there's a bunch of robbers and killers running around today. 
And it might be conflicted. You might be, you know, right on, fight the power. But at the same time, hey, maybe, you know, stop robbing and killing people. But that's who they were. Even if a pirate, personally, didn't kill anyone, they still profited off of the murder that their companions committed for them. They were all culpable. Today's story, though, does carry a few significant wrinkles. Wrinkles that make me question the entire process and the end which all of these pirates eventually met. This is episode 256, Dancing the Hempen Jig. Thus far, the pirates of the fancy that had been captured and charged, that is to say Joseph Dawson, Edward Forsyth, William May, William Bishop, James Lewis, and John Sparks, well, they had endured two trials. The first was for the capture of the Gunji Sawai, the Gunsway, but a sympathetic jury found them, shockingly, not guilty. The second trial, though, was for the mutiny on board the Charles II, and there they were found guilty. And that guilty verdict sealed their fate, but they would endure a third trial. On the 6th of November, 1696, those six pirates were dragged into the court there at the Old Bailey once again, this time for the capture of two Danish vessels way at the beginning of their voyage. It was a minor affair very early on. I barely mentioned it because there wasn't much to mention. The Dutch ships surrendered, and the fancy unloaded some of their cargo and let them go. That's, that's the story. No one was killed or harmed in the attack. But this third trial was nonetheless necessary. See, the English government had finally secured the guilty verdict that they needed, and that's great. But that guilty verdict was for a mutiny. They had six mutineers here, and that's fine, but it's not what they were after. I mean, say that someone in your town were to steal a car and then drive that car through a shopping mall killing a bunch of people in the process, but for some reason, for whatever technicality, they couldn't be charged for the killing a bunch of people in the shopping center, so they get charged with Grand Theft Auto. You know, I guess it's good that we got them, but that's not the really egregious crime here. In this brief third trial, the pirates were found guilty again, or Joseph Dawson pleaded guilty, but now they were finally, blessedly, in the eyes of the law, pirates. And that's important. You know, the English government had to be able to tell the rest of the world, especially the Grand Mughal Aurangzeb, that they were punishing these pirates for piracy. It wouldn't look great to tell the Mughal that, yeah, they're getting punished, but not for the murder and rape and theft from your people, but for... Stealing some rich Londoner's ship. It makes it look like you have some pretty skewed priorities. And, you know, they might just leave off the fact that these pirates convicted of piracy were convicted of piracy against the Danes. But this third trial was all about those international optics. It only mattered in that the Crown would be able to tell the Mughal the good news and the East India Company would be allowed to continue their operations in India. For the men of the fancy, it changed 
nothing. Their fates had already been sealed. On the 10th, the pirates were dragged back into court. It was noted, even in the official transcript, how weak and emaciated they looked, how defeated they appeared to be. This was not a trial. This was their sentencing hearing. After the initial formalities, the lengthy introducing of all the grandees who were present, the court addressed Joseph Dawson, who, according to the court, quote, By your own confession, are convicted of piracy and robbery. What have you to say? Why sentence of death shall not be passed upon you, according to law? Dawson, who had pleaded guilty, replied, quote, I submit myself to the king and the honorable bench. Next up was Edward Forsyth, and the record tells us that he said, quote, I am an innocent man, but then it just goes on to say that he, quote, went on to justify himself, etc. But Forsyth was interrupted by the judge of the admiralty, who said, You and the rest of the prisoners have had a very fair trial, and been fully heard upon your defense. But the jury, your countrymen, have found you guilty, so that the insisting upon your justification cannot now avail you anything. Now that might seem harsh, but it's not wrong. The trial was over. A verdict had been passed. This was a sentencing hearing. But over and over again, all throughout this process, these pirates, alleged pirates, appeared not to really know what was going on when they're ordered to put in a plea, or when they're here to defend themselves from execution, they're just confused. And then, when they act confused, they get berated by the men who made these rules up in the first place, for, you know, not knowing the rules. Finally, though, when Forsyth had been instructed in what was going on here, he said, quote, I desire to be sent into India to suffer there. Now, this was not an unheard-of sentence. A lot of prisoners, especially those who had been found guilty of crimes at sea, were put into the custody of the East India Company. So mutineers, smugglers, even some small-time pirates were sent to work on East India Company ships. They were prisoners, you know, they weren't paid a wage, they weren't allowed to leave, but... They did occasionally, once their sentence was up, get hired on by the company. That, though, was the exception. Most men chose to go home once their sentence was up, and a lot of them, well, a lot of men died. From disease, mostly, but also things like horrific beatings and lack of food, you know, typical age-of-sale stuff. However, many of the men who served on board East India Company ships and their imprisonment, well, they escaped. It was a far from perfect system, but we'll talk more about that next time. For now, next up we have William May, who told the court, quote, My lord, I, being a very sickly man, never acted in all the voyage. I have served my king and country this thirty years, and am very willing to serve the East India Company. If I must suffer, I desire to be sent into India to suffer there. And it was a long shot, but it wasn't out of the question. Over and over again, this entire trial, they had been accused of threatening the East India Company and therefore the lifeblood of the English Empire. If that was their crime, maybe, just maybe, 
they would be allowed to serve out a sentence working for this company they so threatened. Next up, though, we find William Bishop, and I don't really know how best to explain the kind of weird celebrity that William Bishop experienced. I'm looking for a reference here, something that I could compare this to, but all of mine are really super dated. The best I could come up with, from my own experience, are magazines that were marketed to girls and young women with pictures of teen heartthrob Leo DiCaprio, or maybe Jonathan Taylor Thomas. I don't know who the current teen heartthrobs are, and I don't even think they print those kind of magazines anymore, so if you don't get that reference, ask your parents. Ask your mom about the binder that she definitely had at one point covered with pictures from those magazines that she would be terribly embarrassed to have you see today. But William Bishop was kind of like that. He was kind of the bad boy, you know, a dreamy, misunderstood kid who just got caught up with the wrong crowd. He said here at the sentencing, I was forced away, and when I went I was but eighteen years old, and am now but twenty-one, and desire the mercy of the king and court. And from a certain segment of the London population, he most certainly would have received it, but not from the court. James Lewis would go on to say, I am an ignorant person, and leave myself to the king's mercy. Finally, John Sparks said, I leave myself to the king's mercy, and to the honorable court. Once the men had all given their final arguments, it was time for the admiralty judge to hand down his final judgment. He said from the bench, quote, Joseph Dawson, you stand convicted upon four indictments by your own confession for piracy and robbery. And you, Edward Forsyth, William May, William Bishop, James Lewis, and John Sparks, having put yourselves upon your trials according to the customs and laws of your own country, have been found guilty upon three several indictments for the same detestable crimes committed upon the ships and goods of Indians, of Danes, and of your own fellow subjects. The law for the heinousness of your crime hath appointed a severe punishment by an ignominious death, and judgment which the law awards is this, that you and every one of you be taken from hence to the place from whence you came, and from thence to the place of execution, and that there you and every one of you be hanged by the necks, until you and every one of you be dead, and the Lord have mercy upon you. End quote. Now, a couple of things here. This whole series of trials had moments and testimonies and witnesses and claims made by judges and even people in positions in the court that would see the entire process thrown out today. It might see some of those witnesses and members of the court arrested because what they were doing is illegal by today's standards. And... On the one hand, all of the modern authors that I have read bemoan this, and 
I agree with them for the most part. This is an egregious violation of everything that the modern justice system holds dear. But, on the other hand, these pirates did it. You know, maybe not the rape, maybe not the killing, but the piracy and the mutiny they definitely took part in, and they were culpable in everything that happened. That transcript, from which we've been deriving so much the last few weeks, concludes immediately following this sentence of death, quote, According to this sentence, Edward Forsyth and the rest were executed on Wednesday, November 26, 1696, at Execution Dock, that being the usual place for the execution of pirates. End quote. And that's where it ends. Fanny. But that's not exactly what happened. After their sentencing, but before the execution date, John Sparks wrote a series of letters from prison protesting not his innocence exactly, but casting doubt on some of the men that testified against him. And as it turns out, some of these doubts did kind of have some merit. David Cray, one of the star witnesses against them, was into some shady business deals on the side and may have been defrauding Spanish expedition shipping before the mutiny took place. What he was doing, allegedly, wasn't out of the ordinary. It was pretty typical skimming off the top and, you know, reporting larger purchases at higher prices than what the supplies and cargo really cost. It was illegal, of course, but smart fraudsters had been getting away with this kind of thing for centuries by ensuring that the only people who suffered were the grunts. If the officers had their fine wines, fresh breads, and nice cheeses... Nobody noticed or cared. It's a rare commander that actually does something about this kind of fraud. But it's also a sign of a good commander. You know, Caesar did it. Napoleon did it. Peter the Great did it. All of the great military commanders of history want to eliminate that waste and make sure that their soldiers are happy. Now, these accusations did, in fact, cast some doubt on Mr. Cray and see him in a spot of legal trouble down the road, but they did not nullify his testimony against the pirates. And these letters did nothing to stop what was coming. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. On the morning of November 26th, Edward Forsyth, William May, 
William Bishop, James Lewis, and John Sparks were herded from their cells and taken to a waiting cart. Now, you may have noticed a name missing, if you can keep track of all the names. Joseph Dawson was not among them. While the transcript said that Edward Forsyth and the rest were executed, Joseph Dawson would not be joining them today. He was the only man among them who pleaded guilty, who owned his crimes, which is a tactical move on the part of the Crown and the prosecution, showing mercy for honesty and what appeared to be genuine repentance. It's a tactic we'll see many times in the future of the pirates. The first stop for the five who were on this journey was a nearby pub. There, the five pirates met with a priest and were given a mug of beer. Each of them gave the priest a confession, a private confession, and they drank their beers and finally were taken back to the waiting cart and then on to execution dock. The journey to the dock was awful. I don't need to describe it, I don't think. I mean, you've seen movies, you know kind of what was happening. The crowd hurled obscenities at these five men, and rotten vegetables, and of course human waste, and finally stones. But they did arrive at Execution Dock. Execution Dock overlooked the Thames River, and it was a spot intended for the punishment of pirates and smugglers and any who violated the laws of the Admiralty, the laws of the sea. When the five condemned men arrived, the Three men who had been their compatriots but were not to be hanged were there waiting for them. John Dan and the 13-year-old Philip Middleton, the two who had turned state's witness, were both there, as was Joseph Dawson, but he was still a prisoner. Now, I had originally today intended to spend some time talking about what these hangings were really like, but then I started getting into the reading, and it turns out I don't want to talk about that. The gritty details are kind of gross. I mean, you know, literally gross, obviously. We're talking about people being hanged to death. It's unpleasant business. But what really started getting to me doing the reading was how the people reacted to these hangings. They loved it. It was a party. I mean, a real party. Now, you know, I've been to a few tailgates in my time. I know that in the UK, and probably most of the rest of the world, they enjoy a good party before a football match, and these kind of things can get pretty wild. You've got these large groups of people that are kind of all broken up into their separate parties, but they can combine and merge, so you've got tons of people drinking and grilling out and singing songs, but at the centerpiece of it, instead of a fun sporting event of your choice, you've got five men who are going to hang to death. They're going to watch five men die. Hopefully they got a good spot. So I don't want to linger on that. I don't like it. But I will say this about the details of the hanging itself. There are two basic varieties of hangings. First, you have those that are done with a relatively long rope. That's the procedure in which the condemned climbs a scaffold and stands on a trap door. The noose is secured around the neck. A lever is pulled by the executioner, and then it's a short drop and a sudden stop. The purpose of this style of hanging was to break their necks, 
It was generally seen as a more humane option. It was faster, and by the people in the crowd, it was generally understood to be a much less entertaining option. The second variety of hanging used a much shorter rope, and instead of a full scaffold, it utilized a stool and oftentimes nothing more than a tree branch. Here, when the stool was kicked out from under the condemned, it didn't break their necks. It just strangled them to death. It was slow and brutal, and the people loved it. And that's what was going to happen to Edward Forsyth, William May, William Bishop, James Lewis, and John Sparks. One by one, they were marched to the point of execution. They were given their last rites. They were given an opportunity to speak their last words. Then they climbed on a short stool. A noose was placed around their neck, and the stool was kicked out from under them. As their faces turned red and then purple and then almost black, the hanged man would struggle. They would kick their legs, trying to find purchase, you know, fighting for their lives here. Even if they knew there was no hope, it was instinct. This jerking about, and everybody did it. It was called, by the people of England, dancing the hempen jig. One by one, these pirates were killed. The crowd cheered every time a stool was kicked out from beneath one of them. Once the five men were dead, at low tide, the bodies were taken out to the beach and attached to stakes that would be covered when the tide came in. Now, any bodies that were left after the tide went back out, they would be removed and taken to an anonymous grave where they would be buried, but that was rare. Usually, the bodies that were taken to the beach were washed away or removed by predators. Joseph Dawson was going to wait in prison for another few months. He wouldn't be released until February, 1697. But he wasn't really free. I mean, none of the three men were. Their crimes followed them for the rest of their lives. And it seems like none of them were really permitted to leave London for any length of time, at least not for a few years. See, every few months or so, a new commission would be formed, or some new counselor would get curious about what had happened out there, and one or all of these men would be called in to testify once again. As for those five who died, I would love to tell you their final words. But I can't tell you what these pirates said. Not honestly. See, we have a whole bunch of different accounts of what these men all said there at Execution Dock. They were funny, and they were insulting, but most of all, these men were recorded as being remorseful. According to most of the accounts we have, they made appeals to God, and the king, and their fellow Englishmen asking for forgiveness, and imploring that nobody follow in their footsteps. Which given their situation, you know, that might have been their genuine sentiment, but it's also conveniently exactly the kind of stuff that lords and ministers and members of parliament and, of course, the king would really want some pirates to say right before they were executed. Like almost everything about Henry Every, this is shrouded in 
untruths and mystery. I can, though, tell you what the crown wanted people to think, what they wanted every man and woman who read these accounts, anyone who might even consider following in these pirates' footsteps, what they were to think. There was one prominent ballad that was sung on street corners and printed on broadsheets and newspapers that was not exactly promulgated by the crown, but supported by the authorities. It was written from the point of view of the pirates hanged on that November day. I won't read the entire ballad, but I'm going to leave you today with a couple of choice passages that read, quote, Well may the world against us cry, for these our deeds most base, for which, alas, we now must die. Death looks us in the face, which is no more than what's our due, since we so wicked were, and here shall be declared to you, let pirates then take care. We, with our comrades not yet taken, together did agree, and stole a ship out of the groin to roam upon the sea, with which we robbed and plundered too no ship that we did spare, thus many a one we did undo. Let pirates then take care. We robbed a ship upon the seas, the Gunsway called by name, which we met near the East Indies and rifled the same, in it was gold and silver store, of which we all had a share, each man six hundred pounds and more. Let pirates then take care. Thus wickedly we every day lived upon others' good, that which, alas, we must repay now with our dearest blood. For we on no one mercy took, nor any did we spare. How can we then for mercy look? Let pirates then take care. We thus did live most cruelly, and of no danger thought, but we at last, as you may see, are unto justice brought. For outrages of villainy, of which we guilty are, and now this very day must die, let pirates then take care. Now farewell to this wicked world, and our companions too, from hence we quickly shall be hurled to clear the way for you. For certainly, if e'er you come to justice as we are, deserved death will be your doom. Then pirates all take care. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has recommended us to your friends or family, and everybody who has left us ratings or reviews that help get the show noticed. Without all of you, this wouldn't be possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like History of the Second World War, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. I got into the classic 1960s British documentary, The World at War. Definitely worth a watch. I listened to the audiobook for The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, also a classic. And this podcast has really kind of helped scratch that itch. I can't recommend it highly enough. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. You can always check them out at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, 
Thank you for listening. Tonight